0: Hi, and welcome to the McGregor Dementia Support Ministry podcast, a podcast providing relevant resources to those currently walking the dementia journey with their loved ones. Today's podcast is a session recorded from our Alzheimer's and dementia seminar held here at McGregor Baptist Church on February 19, 2022. Today's podcast session title is Adapting to Changing Relationships on the Dementia Journey by Dr. Edward G. Shaw. of um, this presentation is um, attachment and challenging behavioral expressions in people living with dementia. So I want to tell you a story that was the most challenging day in the nine years that I cared for my late wife with her her dementia. And it happened about three, three and a half years before she passed away. Um, she loved coffee. And so our morning routine was we had a back porch and, um, we would sit on the back porch and, uh, we would drink coffee together. So I brought out a mug of coffee for her and I had to go back to get the cream. And when I came back, the sun had come up over the, the wall of our patio and it was shining in her hair. And at 53, she didn't have any gray hair. She had blonde hair. And the sun was shining through and I looked at her and I said, sweetie, your hair looks beautiful this morning. And she looked at me and she had this absolutely blank expression. And she said, I have no idea who you are. That was the worst moment. And that day changed. It obviously changed for my my daughters and I because, you know, that night I went to get in our bed where we'd slept for 30 some years and she scooted all the way to the edge and turned away from me. And I realized I was a stranger in her bed. And, um, and her behavior changed that day and she started having behaviors that were very different than how she was in the early part of the journey and through her, her adult life. She's a very kind and gentle, sweet person. So what happened that day? You know? Obviously, something in the brain changed, something shrunk, and she, her memory for her family was lost. But what was it that propelled these changes in behavior? In a sense, I want you to think about, from her perspective, as a person living with dementia, what happened. So that's what I'm going to try and convey with this talk. So the the medical term for the behavior changes of dementia is a term that I really dislike intensely. It's called the neuropsychiatric uh, uh, behaviors of dementia. I'm going to talk about the ones that occur in early to middle stage part of the journey. There's another set of behaviors that occur more in the middle to late stage, and I don't have time to talk about those today. But we'll talk about these because they're the ones you see so common early on. And in some ways, these could be other things that would not be typical for normal cognitive aging. So the most common one is apathy. The person just loses all their motivation, their get up and go to do anything whatsoever. it's a real frustration for family caregivers. Lack of insight, impaired judgment, even denial. I don't have dementia. You know, there's nothing wrong with my memory. How frustrating that is for family care partners, you know, for a, an adult child who's seeing these dramatic changes in memory or in other things, and their mom or dad has no recognition that those things are going on. Um, and so that can be because they've lost the insight or they can be in denial that it's really happening. Um, The brain, uh, mostly the frontal and temporal lobes of the brain are responsible for how we express emotion. So we essentially have four emotions uh, as humans, happy, sad, mad, and anxious. And then other emotions are variations of those. And how we express those emotions depends on the situation, sort of what's going on. People who have dementia lose the ability to express emotion normally. They can receive emotion. I'll say this later. They can feel loved all the way to the end of the journey. But, you know, we're used to love and relationship being reciprocal, right? So um, where is Claire? Oh, there she is. So that's my wife, Claire. She was an Alzheimer's caregiver herself and lost her husband a few weeks after Rebecca passed away. And then we met and we married a couple years ago after she asked me to marry her. Um, (laughs) But... Um, so Claire, Claire is a very loving person. She says, I love you all the time. And I say, I love you. It's, it's a reciprocal form of expressing emotion to one another. The person who has dementia can feel that love, but they can't say the, I love you back so easily or it's challenged. Um, so changes in emotional expression, Loss of empathy, loss of appreciation. I do so much for her and she never says thank you to me. Really common thing that care partners will say. And I'll say it's not that she won't or that he won't say thank you, it's that they can't. You know, think back to that shrunken brain. They just don't have the ability to express some words or thoughts or emotions. Um, With dementia, you can have change in mood too depression, anxiety, even obsessive-compulsive-like behaviors, even to the point of hoarding. There can be lots of mental health changes that go along with the dementia journey because those mental health wires get changed in the brain too. Other behavioral challenges, repetitive questions or repetitive vocalizations, help me, help me. I want to go home. Or repetitive questions, what time are we going to dinner? What time are we going to dinner? You'll see an example of this in a sec. Um, And it's, again, it's not that the person is choosing to annoy you by asking the same question over and over. They literally, they don't remember. It's a new question every minute. And so, um, lost identity, I gave you an example. You know, fortunately, most people with dementia know their loved ones all the way to the end of the journey. About a third of people will lose the identity of their loved ones like Rebecca did. It's a very, very hard, hard part of the journey. Delusions. Delusions occur very frequently in people living with dementia, especially in Lewy body dementia. Um, A delusion is when you believe something to be true that isn't true. So most of the delusions that occur with dementia are paranoid. So paranoid is just when you're worried that someone is doing something to you, they shouldn't. It's delusions around money. You're trying to take my money. So Rebecca's dad, my father-in-law, had terrible paranoia about money. Um, Fidelity. This is one of the most harmful delusions a person with dementia can have. I'll show you an example of this uh, in just a few minutes where the person thinks their husband or their wife is cheating on them and they accuse them of infidelity and it can be very harmful in a long-term relationship where people have been faithful in that relationship or the delusion that somebody's going to harm them. Again, a little bit more common in Lewy body dementia where they think that somebody's going to physically harm them. And then last but not least is um, our brains, the front part of our brains are kind of our brakes on behavior. Things that you think or things that you think about doing but you choose not to because it's not the right thing to do uh, or say, that's called behavioral inhibition. And so we all inhibit things that we are going to think about saying or doing all the time. But people lose those breaks, especially with frontotemporal dementia. Frontotemporal dementia is much more about behavior than it is about memory loss. And um, so behaviors like rudeness, socially inappropriate comments, crying or laughing spells, uh, excessive carbohydrate, binging, eating lots of sweets. These are all things that are kind of common in frontotemporal dementia and can occur in, um, in other forms of dementia too. So why do these things happen? Um, and what I want to present to you is a framework of what's called in the world of counseling, attachment. And attachment is sort of how it is that we come to like each other or to love each other in relationship. And what I'll say up front is that dementia is a disorder of attachment. That people who have dementia, they lose their attachments over time. And that has profound consequences for their behavior. So what is attachment uh, exactly? Attachment, as I said, it's how you come to be in a relationship, to like or love somebody, and to experience the joy of being together. So we call those our attachment bonds. And to avoid the dislike of being apart, what we call separation distress. So attachment theory which is from about the 1950s or so says that our first attachment is usually with our mother and here's a picture of a mother uh holding her child and you know between baby and mother the uh baby it, the mom is the baby's source of nourishment comfort safety insecurity. And for uh, those of you who have had children and, or grandchildren and you've held that baby, you know from a very early age, and it's said even when a baby is born and sees its mother for the first time, that uh, those attachment bonds begin to form instantly. They probably form even before the child is born. And so we find comfort in That maternal figure, that's our main attachment figure. So we talk about securely attached children. They interact with strangers and they don't feel threatened. They can separate from their parents without feeling anxious. They can explore new situations without being fearful. They're confident and they have positive self-esteem. And they're socially connected, so over their lifespan, they form numerous relationships, numerous attachment bonds. It begins with mom, then parents, siblings, extended family. Kids get into school. They have friends. They get into high school and college. They're a little bit less attached to family, perhaps, and more to their friends. Then they partner in young adulthood. They have a career. They form bonds with their their work colleagues. All through life, we have a different attachments. We have core attachment figures, uh, our family primarily, and certain core friends, and then we have other attachments that sort of come and go. There are peeps. And so now I want to take you back to that morning when Rebecca and I had coffee and imagine how she felt when all of a sudden she looks at this man and she doesn't know who he is. And she leaves the back porch and goes into our home and it doesn't look familiar. As best we could tell, and overnight, um, she lost all of her knowledge of her life going back to her middle school years where she grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Everything else was gone. She didn't remember college, graduate school, marriage, raising three daughters, it was all gone. And now she was living in a world where she knew nobody and nothing looked familiar. That's separation anxiety and separation distress. And I think that this is what drives a lot of the challenging behavioral expressions that occur in people with dementia. So now for those of you who are caregivers of a loved one with dementia or know someone who's been on the journey, when I talk about what an insecurely attached child is like, you can sort of replace that loved one and see if this rings true for how they may be um, expressing themselves behaviorally. So someone, an insecurely attached child feels threatened by strangers. They're anxious or even angry when they're separated from their parents. They're fearful in new situations. They lack that confidence and self-esteem and they tend to be much more socially isolated. And the attachment bonds they have with other people are not very strong. And just think about how people who have lived people with dementia who have lived in residential care. So I don't use the, so that for me, the F word of dementia is facility. So I don't use that F word. People who are in residential care, what it was like when COVID hit and all of a sudden they could not see their attachment figures. And the people who they might've known, the healthcare workers had masks on and those people were changing quite frequently. It was, it was really just, it was a terrible situation. But dementia is a situation of insecure attachment. So what happens, let's say this child is separated from her mother in um, a department store. We still have some of those around. Um, so if the child and the parent become separated, uh, they both exhibit behaviors of separation distress. Crying, Uh, calling out, lashing out, because the child in the moment feels abandoned. You know, their mom is gone or dad is gone, and they're seeking out that parent. And of course, the parent is freaking out too. Uh, When my daughters were little, they used to like to hide in the racks of clothing, you know, at Kohl's or or something, and it would just, it would totally uh, unglue mom and dad. Now, what happens to the brain when we're experiencing separation distresses? The brain starts, it changes chemically. And it changes chemically, it starts cranking out this chemical called dopamine. So the brain winds up with way too much dopamine. And dopamine is a chemical when it's in excess in the brain. So it can be a happy chemical, but when there's way too much, it's not a happy chemical. It's what drives that separation distress. And that's what I'm going to talk about in just a sec. So what does attachment have to do with dementia? Well, a lot. Because as I've said, people who have dementia... Uh, they feel unattached to their loved ones because of these changes in the brain. Maybe they don't remember their loved ones like Rebecca did, or maybe their loved ones don't look familiar because one of the things the brain does is it tells me when I look at Kim, I know her face is Kim Mitchell. When we look at each other, we recognize each other by facial recognition. And that's part of what your temporal lobe does. But the temporal lobe is what's first affected in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, That's where memory is stored. And so somebody with dementia may look at someone, and it may be their family member, and they may not recognize them. Or have you ever seen uh, someone with dementia who goes up to a person, and they think they're someone else? Uh, it's because they have similar face shape to somebody that they know. They've lost the facial recognition for detail. And so attachment has a lot to do with dementia because it's a, it's a disorder of attachment loss. So people with dementia tend to respond in two ways. They either are seeking, so their behavior is a result of them looking for either people or things that are familiar to them. or they're withdrawn, they give up. I'm never gonna find someone or something that's familiar. So the behaviors of the seeking response are, if you will, too much behavior. There's anxiety, worry, fear, panic, even anger and aggression. Paranoia, repetitive questions, I wanna go home. When a person says with dementia, says I wanna go home, one of the most common vocalizations that occurs in this disease, they're literally saying, this place around me is not my home, I want to go home. I had a lady, so uh, we live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I had a lady whose husband was a pastor and he grew up in Southeast Georgia about a 9 hour drive from Winston Salem. And he would drive her crazy cuz all day long he'd say I want to go home, I want to go home. One morning, she put him in the car and she drove 9 hours to his childhood home which was still there. And they got out of the car after this long drive and they walked up to the front door and he gets to the front door and he looks all around and you know what he said to her? I want to go home. Home was kind of what he remembered in his mind and in his heart growing up as a boy with his brothers running around. Um, And so um, it's it's very much an expression of separation loss and separation distress or distressing vocalizations. Help me, you, come here. Come here, you, come here. You've seen that. You know, they have the wheelchairs lined up around the nursing station and there's people there and they're crying out. What do we do, right? We walk around them, right, as far as we can. But you know, it's interesting if you go up to someone, they're going, like, help me. Well, what's wrong? Oh, and that person, nine times out of 10, will talk about someone or something that connects them with their past. Have you ever had the experience where somebody with dementia is talking to their mother or their father or a relative or somebody who's dying will talk to a relative? It's an expression of separation loss and wanting to reconnect with someone or something that's familiar. Somebody said to me before the conference today, sometimes I just don't know how to respond and we'll talk about next kind of a framework for for doing that. Now, the withdrawn response is when the person just sort of gives up. Um, They say, I'm never gonna find someone or something that's familiar to me, and they just, they withdraw. They curl up in bed, they cry, they're sad, they feel lonely, and you have this, you can just sense that there's a real helplessness to, uh, to how they're behaving. So those are the seeking and withdrawn responses. So these are the behavioral expressions of dementia that occur that are related to separation um, distress. The ones that are shown there in yellow. And what I wanna do now is to talk about, um, I'm gonna just skip through these slides. I wanna talk about what do you do when somebody who has dementia uh, has a situation where their behavior is something that sort of makes you say, I have no idea what to say here. Or, I have no idea what to do here. That happens all the time as a family care partner. So these behavioral expressions in early to middle stage dementia uh, often lead to changes in relationship because you get sort of stymied. You're not sure, well, well I don't know how to handle this situation. And that's why um, I hope to provide for you some tools that you can use when you find yourself in that position. So... Let's talk strategy. So I'm gonna talk about three strategies. Um, There are more strategies that are are talked about in the Dementia Care Partners workbook. Um, And uh, the book Keeping Love Alive as Memory Fades, The Five Love Languages in the Alzheimer's Journey is just about how to use the five love languages as sort of a toolkit of connecting with someone emotionally on the dementia journey. But let's begin with some examples. These are all examples of people that I saw in my counseling practice at Wake Forest, all families on the dementia journey. So this is a couple. Um, This man is the care partner for his wife who has kind of middle-stage Alzheimer's disease with pretty severe memory impairment. So one day he says to her, honey, I think we're going to go out to dinner tonight about six o'clock. And so a minute later, uh, she says to him, honey, what time are we going out to dinner tonight? And he says to her, well, we're, you know, kind of happy. We're going out to dinner, six o'clock, looking forward to going out tonight. And about a minute later, she says, honey, what time are we going out to dinner tonight? And so now he's getting a little annoyed. You can see that look on his face. And he says, we're going out to dinner at six o'clock. So he's not quite as nice about it, but he hasn't kind of gone over the edge yet. And then she says a minute later, honey, what time are we going out to dinner tonight? And he loses it. He says, like I've told you 10 times in the last 10 minutes, we are going out to dinner at six o'clock. And if you ask me again, maybe we'll just forget it. Okay. So now she feels terrible. She doesn't exactly remember what she said to make him mad, but she knows that he got mad. And he feels terrible because he knows exactly what happened. He lost his patience again, and he got angry with her, and he knows that sort of deep down that she can't remember, but it's just he hears the same questions over and over and over every day. So, patience that's really kind of the first strategy to talk about in someone who is um, living with cognitive impairment or dementia. Um, so, I always Refer back to the brain, Um, and I've said this before in the talk earlier on, um, it's not that she's choosing to not remember to irritate him. It's not that she won't remember, it's that she can't. You know, think about that shrunk picture of that shrunken brain. When you look at uh, the hippocampus, which is this little seahorse shaped structure in the brain, it's about as big as your thumb. Um, and the word hippocampus is Greek or Latin for seahorse. This is a funny looking thing. It's, it's deep in your brain in your temporal lobe, right under your temporal. And your hippocampus is where your memory is. So your memory is just a bunch of neurons and a bunch of chemicals that help you remember stuff. And when you look at the brain of someone with Alzheimer's disease, their hippocampus is gone. It's like literally their thumb is cut off. They have no capacity to remember. That module is not in that computer. It just doesn't exist. They can't do it. And so so we teach that to caregivers. It's not that they won't, they can't. Because when you encounter a situation, because you're dealing with a person with a cognitive disorder, you can't reason it out with them. So this happens all the time. Well, honey, you know, I have told you this over and over and over again that we're going out to dinner. So you're trying to reason with someone who has a disorder of their cognitive function. They can't remember that. They can't process that. An explanation is not gonna be helpful. So this is where the relationship becomes unequal. It falls on you as the care partner to sort of deal with the situation. So you have to think about it and say, okay, what's going on and how am I going to respond? And so when someone asks a repetitive question, then you say, oh, they're doing this because they just can't remember. And that kind of begins your response. And, um, and so patience is a skill that develops over time. So the, the woman who I mentioned, whose husband kept saying, I want to go home, I want to go home, you know, she felt compelled to answer that question or statement of his every time he said it or to do something about it. And, you know, eventually taught her, you know, you don't have to stay and respond to that each time. You know, you can respond to it once or respond to it a couple of times. But if he's persisting in that, you can try and redirect his attention. Or if you need to, just go to the other room. Honey, I'll be right back going to run into the kitchen for a minute and just take a little downtime, you know, take a little bit of a breather. Um, And uh, so for this gentleman, well, honey, we're going to go out at six o'clock and he doesn't need to sit and hear the repetitive question necessarily. He can say, I'm just going to run out in the garage. I want to do something there and just remove himself and kind of decompress before um, he gets upset. So, patience, easier said than done. Keep in mind, it's not that she won't remember, she can't. It's best to not lose your temper if you can avoid doing it. It's best so in counseling, we call it, keep the drama level down. Once the drama level goes up, then it really, it, it kind of changes the whole dynamic there. Then you have more damage control to do. Like when he loses it and yells at her, now he feels bad about himself. She won't remember what the situation was. Might remember that he was upset, but she won't remember the exact situation. Don't take what they say personally. If someone, you know, you do something and the person doesn't express gratitude, they're not choosing to just be mean and, you know, get you to do more. It's just they don't have the ability to sort of understand empathy and to say, thank you so much for helping. You help me every day. Thank you for taking me out to dinner. Um, So don't take those things personally. The battle and the victory is in your mind And this is sort of part of where the gospel fits into even the counseling skill of patience, that extending grace and mercy to the person in that situation will bring understanding and empathy. It will build relationships um, where relationships are challenged. And remember, this is something my middle daughter said to me one time, you know, dad, you can only do the best you can do in a situation and you can't do better. You can do better next time, but in that situation that's occurred, you know, you did the best you could given what you had to deal with. And um, you can learn and do better next time. So second strategy is acknowledge, affirm, and redirect. I call it the AAR strategy. So this is another true story. So this is a a couple. Uh, The man has uh, Alzheimer's disease, and the woman... um, and her husband are going shopping together and they're in the grocery store and a man walks by who's about the same age as her husband and so the husband looks at his wife and he says who is that man that just walked by and she says well I don't know I've never seen him before and he says it sure seems like you knew him to me and she says, why, honey, he's a perfect stranger. I don't know who that man is. And he screams out at the top of his lungs. These were not his exact words. You can imagine more hurtful words than this. You're sleeping with him, aren't you? They got married at 18 and 19. They had been married 62 years. They had been faithful to each other in marriage. She was Absolutely devastated. I can still picture her sitting in my office telling this story, just absolutely weeping. And she got really angry with him. And she she was just offended. She was deeply hurt. She says, Why, of course not. How dare you? And she stormed out of the grocery store. So, how do you how do you deal with something like that? I like this strategy called Acknowledge Affirm and Redirect because you can use it in any situation, any behavioral situation uh, that you encounter in dementia. Whether you're a family care partner or a friend or you're a professional caregiver, uh, you can use this strategy. And so uh, it's a three-part strategy and it's based in attachment. And so hopefully you'll see this in a sec. So you begin with acknowledge. So you acknowledge the situation that's occurring. You affirm your attachment bonds with that person. And then you try and redirect their behavior. So what they're thinking, what they're saying, what they're doing to something that gets their mind off of the situation that's generating some drama for them. So what would that look like here? So acknowledge. So often... People who are living with dementia, they'll say pretty outlandish things. Like for her, him saying, you're sleeping with that stranger that walked by, that's a pretty outlandish thing. People can have delusions with dementia. They can have hallucinations with dementia. And often our response is to ignore them. Because you say to yourself, that's the craziest thing I ever heard or saw. What do I do? Um... But acknowledging that person is uh, the first thing to do because you're grounding them to being in the present moment with you as an attachment figure. So the, so, um, so, as I was helping this lady, I'd say, so if that were to happen again, um, if he says, you're sleeping with him, aren't you? She could say very calmly the acknowledgement. Honey, did, did you say that you thought I knew that man and I was sleeping with him. So that's the acknowledgement. If somebody is delusional or they have a hallucination, they think there's a burning car driving down the road. Obviously, you know there's not, but you acknowledge the situation. Oh, did you see a burning car driving down the road? Uh, there are people with dementia have all kinds of hallucinations or misperceptions. They think a, a, an electrical wire is a snake so you acknowledge it because you're joining them and grounding them to the present. If you can have the person sit down while they do it, that's even better. Because what do people who are agitated with dementia do? They pace. They walk. They're moving around. Often they're fidgety. And so what you're, you're trying to sort of decrease the activity level, decrease the drama level. So while you're acknowledging... She could take his hand, she says, honey, let's go sit in those chairs right in the front of the Publix where we can just sit down for a minute and talk about this. So you thought that I I knew that man and I was sleeping with him. So you've done the acknowledgement and then you affirm. So what you're affirming is the relationship, the attachment bonds. You know, honey, you see that wedding ring? I gave that to you 62 years ago. And uh, see mine? Uh, You gave that to me 62 years ago and I gave you that ring because I love you and I have been faithful to you for our whole marriage and I never would be unfaithful and doing it in a way that's calming and reassuring and loving. That's the affirmation of the love bonds because it's very possible that while they were going down the grocery store, he might've looked at her and he might not have recognized her you know, maybe her face wasn't familiar or that the memory of their 62 years wasn't there. And so it allowed him, you know, a little bit disinhibited, right? The brakes are not quite on. It allowed him to say something he never would have said to her before he got dementia. Um, and so, so that's the affirmation of the relationship. And then redirect. Honey, let, let's go back. Let's go to the ice cream aisle pick out our favorite chocolate ripple fudge, whatever. And tonight we're going to watch SVU, whatever their favorite show is. And we're going to have some ice cream together and we're going to hold hands, you know? And so now you have a situation that's really difficult and you're able to sort of help ground that person and have a very different response. And this takes practice. Um, but this skill really works, it's, it's really helpful. So again, it's easier said than done, you want to keep the drama level down, and you, you want to think about how you're going to respond. So when something sort of you know, way out there happens, you're going to say, okay, this is really way out there, and the first thing you're going to do is you're just going to kind of calm things down and acknowledge what's happening. Give yourself a minute to think how you can best respond and affirm that relationship, and then direct their attention or redirect their attention somewhere uh, better. This skill definitely takes practice. The last skill I wanna talk about is the five love languages. And so um, uh, the, the five love languages, I understand that Dr. Chapman spoke here in 2019. Yeah, so um, uh, Dr. Chapman, uh, uh, is an amazing man. He just turned 85. He's still speaking all around the world. Uh, uh, he uh, is at the same church that Claire and I go to, a church about the size of McGregor. He's an amazing guy. He, he's interesting. Uh, Claire and I had he and his wife, Carolyn, for dinner one night. And I said, well, Gary, are you, are you sort of thinking about slowing down at all? And he said, well, why would I do that? Um, he just he's, he's an incredible guy, and he came up with this, um, this I call it, a framework uh, of how people communicate love to one another in relationship. So he uses the metaphor of language uh, to understand how people express love in relationship. And the Five Love languages oh, and he says at the beginning of his book, "The deepest emotional need that we have as humans is to love and to be loved." So I'll come back to this slide at the, on the very last slide of the day. So the five love languages in no particular order are acts of service, doing something helpful for someone, especially if they don't ask for it to lighten their load, physical touch, uh, conveying your presence to them through a hug or um, just a, a, an affirming gesture, words of affirmation like, I love you. Uh, especially if they're unsolicited, they uh, demonstrate your affection for that person, you know, in your, your love bonds with them, uh, or your appreciation for that person. Quality time, giving uh, someone your full and undivided attention, and then last but not least, gifts, showing your love through uh, giving someone a gift. It can be something you buy, but it can also be something you find or um, something that you make like a card. So those are um, the five love languages. And the use of the five love languages in marriage relationship counseling is that you as the individual, you learn what your mate's main love language is, and then you work your hardest to love them in the way that they want to be loved. So it's it's a sacrificial act towards your partner. And what Gary will say is that if he identifies, helps a couple identify uh, what their primary love languages are, and that they work on loving each other the way their partner wants to be loved, that it will grow that relationship. And his book has now been translated in 55 languages. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list for 26 years and sold over 13 million copies. And it's just, it's amazing, it, it transcends culture, the five love languages, it's, it's an incredible framework. But what about in Alzheimer's disease? Well, what we know is um, that people who have dementia, as the disease progresses, okay, so as the brain is literally shrinking, that they become more cognitively impaired, so they lose memory, multitasking, language ability, they become more cognitively impaired and it becomes harder for them to express their emotions. But the ability to feel loved is a core emotion that's in the deepest part of our brain and is connected through every corner of our brain. And the ability to feel loved is present all the way until that person takes their last breath. It's just that loving them is the sacrificial act on your part. And that because of that, the the depth and breadth of the love connection primarily lies with you as the care partner. So here's the last example that I'm going to share with you this morning. And this is a couple that I saw. um, And uh, the woman had mild cognitive impairment. Uh, and the man was her husband. They were retired. And um, they, had, uh, they, they had raised um, three daughters together. And they had a relationship where he was the breadwinner and she was the homemaker. And they had very defined roles in the relationship. Um, and then he retired, so he, had, he didn't have his job to go home to, and she developed MCI. And all of a sudden, sort of he took over doing everything in the house, and it just, it, it crumbled kind of their partnership. So they came in, and they said, um, she says to me, uh, and they were seated just like this picture I stole from the internet. It's obviously not them, um, but they were seated with their backs to each other. And um, she said, he, he doesn't love me anymore. And he says, well, she doesn't love me anymore. They had been married half a century. And uh, she says, he doesn't let me do anything. What do you think her love language was? Acts of service. So for somebody who's an acts of service person and all of a sudden he takes over, that's a, kind of, that's a double whammy for her. And he says, it's kind of a classic expression. I do so much for her and she expresses no appreciation whatsoever. What do you think his love language was? Words of affirmation. So now you've got the complete disconnect. Um, they're not speaking each other's languages. She says, I'm, I'm just so sad and so discouraged. And he said, maybe if I actually spend less time with her, then she'll feel better. So it was, it was a broken relationship. So the... Um, Uh, Again, your frontal lobes and your temporal lobes, that's kind of where the emotional home uh, is in your brain, and that's where relationships are seated. So um, this couple was ripe for the strategy of using the five love languages. So we did five love language assessments uh, with them and found out that she was primarily an acts of service woman and he was a words of affirmation guy. But what we found in the writing of the book, Keeping Love Alive, and using this, um, so our whole counseling team used this approach in hundreds of of families where there was relationship challenge either between a husband and a wife or uh, within the context of a family system, um, that the five love languages you can use more broadly than just the primary love language and you can sort of try them all in the setting of dementia. So I had this couple after they learned a bit about the five love languages I said I want to give you a homework assignment and that is you know, at the end of the day just sit together on the couch and turn on your favorite TV show and just hold hands and watch TV together. And so even though physical touch was number five out of their five love languages, again, in the setting of dementia, you have to be more creative with the love languages. So, uh, so they did this and they came back in uh, in a follow-up session. They were sitting together on the couch. They were right next to each other. They were holding hands. And the husband who was uh, kind of a, he's a Swedish guy, you know, didn't show a lot of emotion, Maybe his name was Sven or Oli, who knows. And he is just smiling from ear to ear. And he says, Dr. Shah, I have to tell you something. said, what? He said, we're spooning now. (laughs) So so they had learned just by holding hands on the couch that physical touch, though it never had played a big part of their relationship, all of a sudden now in the setting of her MCI and their journey as a couple, It changed their relationship and they cuddled at night. They spooned together and fell asleep and he put his arm across her and that's how they they fell asleep. And it absolutely, it was a sort of a quick fix. So the, the love languages can be used and you can sort of say, well, in this setting, you know, how can I spend time with the person? Maybe I can, I can touch them. I can share some words of affirmation or some scripture that 's affirming. I can do things for them, I can rub their back or rub their feet, or I can give a gift a cookie or chocolate or you know something there 's so many ways that you can use the love languages and there 's such simple tools that you can use to help connect so um, so we we wound up um, we wound up writing this book to Talk about two things one is just the emotional toil of being a dementia caregiver it's a long journey and um, and uh, uh, and I'll talk about kind of the grief and loss uh, next but it's a long journey and the book talks about kind of the emotional toil of being on that journey So what I I hope I've shared with you are three attachment-based strategies. First, taught you about what attachment is and you can think about kind of attachment in your life, who your attachment figures are and um, how uh, attachment-based strategies can help you confront some of the behavioral challenges that occur and to be patient, to acknowledge, affirm, and redirect, uh, and to to use the five love languages uh, that as you confront situations that you think about, well, you know, what can I do in the moment that's gonna really uphold and love this person the most? Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe to this channel if you've not already done so, and also share this content with your friends.